Welcome to the History Today podcast for May 8th, 2012. My name's Dean, and I'm the website manager at History Today. In this episode, David Cook talks to us about the Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. And then somebody in, in the 17th century turned the house on the site into a tavern, and that's when the whole thing kicked off in the, in the Restoration in 1661, and the place opened as a, a, an evening resort where people could go and have a little bit to drink and a little bit to eat and have some enjoyment in the bushes. In the May issue of History Today, David Cook explores the early years of Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens, a major entertainment venue in South London that was hugely popular from the mid-17th to the mid-19th centuries. In particular, he writes about the gardens in the 1730s, when its management was taken over by a young man named Jonathan Tyres. Though from a humble background, Tyres went on to dramatically improve the fortunes of the gardens, and, aided by friends and colleagues such as William Hogarth and George Frederick Handel, turned it into a celebration of the British way of life. David speaks to the deputy editor of History Today, Charlotte Crow. David, I wondered if I could start by just asking you to give us a little bit of a wider description of um, what the pleasure gardens were like um, and what the area of Vauxhall was like at the time in which Jonathan Tyres um, took over management of Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens. Well, uh, Vauxhall at that time was outside London. Uh, it was about a mile and a half from the city centre. Uh, and it really consisted of market gardens, of orchards, of small plantations of woodland. Uh, and it was really one of the sort of um, the kitchen garden of London, if you like. That, that's what it was what it was doing. So there, there were very few uh, built up areas in Vauxhall, one or two industries. There was a glass industry there, uh, a candle industry, that sort of thing, but um, nothing too huge. Uh, but... The gardens themselves started off as one of those plantations of hardwood trees. That's, that's where they started. And the trees, which were elm, lime, sycamore, that sort of thing, all used in the London building trade. Um, and so it started off really as a, as a bit of the, the productive area of Vauxhall. And then somebody in, in the 17th century turned the house on the site into a tavern and that's when the whole thing kicked off in the in the restoration in 1661, and the place opened as a, a an evening resort where people could go and have a little bit to drink and a little bit to eat and maybe some enjoyment in the bushes. So originally, you the, the the plantation dated from the the 17th century or before that. We don't really know how far back it went. Pro- probably 17th century. I mean, it's said that the trees. When Jonathan Tyres took over, which was about 1730, were about 100 years old, uh, and so they they started to to die off during his time, and obviously had to be replaced from time to time. So Jonathan Tyres was a fellmonger uh, based in Bermondsey. What kind of a risk was he taking? Can you tell us a little bit about his his background and how he came to? to take over the gardens. Jonathan Tyres came from a background which had worked for generations in the, the nastier end of the leather trade. Uh, his family, as you said, were fellmongers who bought the raw hides and skins from the slaughterhouses and prepared them for the leather market for, for tanning and that sort of thing. 
Uh, and in fact, Tyers's father seems to have done quite well in this trade, and he owned property in Bermondsey and that sort of thing. So there was there was a small bit of wealth in in the family. Now I think that Tyers's background was, to a certain extent, the spur for him getting out of that area and trying to start something new, something clean, something that didn't smell, for heaven's sake. It was just... <laughs> I mean, Bermondsey must have been revolting, quite honestly, with the, the smells from the tanning industry, which were notorious, uh, and just the muck in the streets. You would walk through, you know, six inches to a foot of, of sludge wherever you went, and just extremely unpleasant. So I think I think Tyres maybe was prompted by this background into thinking to himself, well... There must be something better than this. Do you think he had a vision for something more glamorous then, or a, vi- a vision for, for for the creation of something, or do you think what he did evolved? I wouldn't call it glamorous. I, I think he certainly wanted to provide something, a place where Londoners could go to get away from that awful background that London was at the time, and also from the kind of stresses and strains of everyday life which we still feel now, and we haven't got somewhere like Vauxhall to go to. Uh, but he, he certainly, there was, a, there was a mission there to provide something better than what people could find in London, something pleasanter. You talk about his relationship with the artist William Hogarth and their friendship. Um, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit more about that friendship and how the two might have met. How they met... History doesn't relate at the moment. It would be interesting to to find out, certainly. But Hogarth had uh, a small summer lodging in South Lambeth, just around the corner from Vauxhall Gardens. And there is a legend, in fact, that uh, Jonathan Tyres' elder son was born at Hogarth's house in Lambeth. Uh, we don't have uh, documentation for that, but it's uh, it's a strong enough legend. And clearly the two were friends before Vauxhall Gardens started. Uh, the, <laughs> the story goes that, that William Hogarth found Jonathan Tyres one day looking extremely glum and said, what's wrong, Jonathan? What's happened? And Jonathan Tyres, whose second opening party to Vauxhall had just failed commercially uh, really quite badly, uh, just replied, well, I was just thinking of the best way to do away with myself, whether I should hang myself or drown myself. So <laughs> Hogarth, being a good friend, said, well, don't do anything rash today. Jonathan, come and see me in the morning in my studio in Leicester Square and and we'll discuss what we can do about it. Uh, Now, this second party that Jonathan Tyres had had was a a repeat of the great uh, relaunch party uh, that Jonathan Tyres had organised on the 7th of June 1732, which was, it was called a ridotto al fresco, an exotic term for what was really just a bit of music and dancing in the open air. Uh, a term derived from a, a Venetian entertainment. Was it a term widely used at the time? Would people have known what, what they were coming to? Or was it something that Tyres used to give a sort of continental flavour? He, he pinched it from Venice to, to make his party seem that much more exotic than it was. But what, in fact, he, he created for that party was a kind of moral sermon for his, his visitors. Now, the, the, the visitors to that party had each paid a guinea for their tickets. They were rich, fashionable, usually probably aristocratic, even royal people. And at the first party, they didn't know what to expect. And they came and they found these 
kind of tableaus which told them how awful it was to, to, to be greedy or to drink too much or to eat too much or to, <clears throat> to luxuriate too much in, in the good things of life uh, and what awful consequences followed from that. Uh, so when this party was repeated at the request of somebody, we don't know who it was, probably the Prince of Wales, uh, the second party, people knew what to expect and very few people came to the second party, which was why the, um, the incident with, with William Hogarth when he found him looking so glum, because he'd lost a, a lot of money on that second party. Uh, and I think the reason why, the, the, the reason why uh, Hogarth was so important in the early success of Vauxhall was that he was just starting uh, to paint his series of what we call the modern moral paintings, where Hogarth was <laughs> painting uh, uh, an entertaining subject, which actually hid underneath the subject a moral message. So the audience were first entertained, they laughed, and then they thought when they'd left the painting, yeah, actually, there's, a, there's a, a bit of a moral message behind that. So Hogarth would have said to Tyers, look, you don't want to just preach at people uh, straight out like that. What you need to do is to bring them in, entertain them, and underneath that entertainment, there wants to be some sort of serious, virtuous, moral message which people will take away with them and which maybe will help them to improve their everyday lives. Was he a religious man? That's very difficult to say. He appears to have had a certain sympathy with uh, Catholic um, people uh, and he had close friendships with a number of, of, of Catholic adherents. Um, he was buried in St Mary's Churchyard in Bermondsey, not that that means, means very much, but he doesn't show his religion at Vauxhall Gardens. He did have another garden, uh, his private garden at Denby's in Sussex, which is now a, a famous vineyard, uh, where his, his moral message came up much more strongly and where a religious theme can be seen. So if you ask if he was a religious man, I think he probably was, but he didn't... He didn't push it at, at Vauxhall. He was just a man of strong moral conduct codes for the time. I think he was. I think he was. I, I think he had very strong principles. But within this, he was a great egalitarian, almost a libertarian. At Vauxhall Gardens, many things were allowed or at least brushed under the carpet, which certainly wouldn't have been countenanced as in the in the polite society in London. And is that because of the tradition for pleasure gardens were where people got away to have some some licence to enjoy themselves in that sort of way? Mm. Or do you think that he, was he doing something different with his view of that libertarian? I, th I think he might have been doing something different. I mean, clearly the, the, the pleasure garden, the tavern garden, had a, a tradition of this, and I think he, he saw that this was a good thing and that it brought people in. But one of his friends, as a as a young man, was a lady called Theresia Constantia Phillips, who was a notorious courtesan at the time. Everybody knew about her. She'd been raped as a child by some aristocrat and was forced into the sex trade, basically. And it's quite possible that she, in her conversations with the young Jonathan Tyres, might have persuaded him that that this that the sex trade actually was a good thing in London, that it was part of the London economy, that it needed a place where it could be carried on respectably I see. by young ladies who at least would have dressed respectably. Uh, Jonathan Tyres had a, 
not not a dress code as such, but I think anybody who came to the gardens looking either disreputable or um, suspect would have been kept out. But generally, the gardens were open to all across society, so it was a place where people of all different classes could rub shoulders. Within the activities that were on offer for the gardens, were those uh, were, were the class differentials? You know, were there distinctions between how different classes operated in terms of what they enjoyed? There was, there was, in theory, no difference at all. The only person who had any difference made for him was the Prince of Wales. Now, he, he was the grand landlord of the site. Vauxhall Gardens is on the Duchy of Cornwall estate uh, in London. Uh, and he was clearly a hugely important patron for Jonathan Tyers. Uh, the original Prince of Wales, when Jonathan Tyers took over, Frederick Louis, who never sadly became king because he died before he could, he was the most popular member of the royal family at the time. And wherever Frederick went, everybody else wanted to go. So to keep him coming to the gardens was a very good plan. And Jonathan Tyres dedicated one of the buildings at the gardens to the prince so that whenever he came, uh, either alone or with his party, he could at least eat in privacy and show himself off on a kind of public stage. Uh, nobody else had that privilege. And whether you were a, a cheesemonger or the Duchess of whatever it was, you, you had the same entertainments, you paid the same to get in, you had the same food, you had the same chance to sit down or stand up and promenade. Uh, so it was entirely egalitarian, apart from the Prince of Wales. And did the Prince of Wales know Tyres personally, or get to know him personally? Did did that Tyres social standing increase because of, because of that relationship or that, that situation that he offered to the Prince of Wales? That's very difficult to say. I mean, he didn't know him... He, he was not in the Prince of Wales' circle, let's put it like that. He wasn't anything like that grand. Uh, he came from a background in trade, and although he, he kind of whitewashed that background when he became entrepreneur of Vauxhall, uh, it never quite went away. He, he might have become a gentleman, and he might have signed himself Jonathan Tyres Esquire, uh, but he wasn't, he wasn't anything like grand enough to, to be at court. But I think the Prince of Wales realised that Vauxhall Gardens was a very good place for him to go to show himself off to the population of London and of England. I mean, everybody came to, to Vauxhall Gardens. And that was really because it was it was an enclosed space, uh, which was policed by Tyres' staff. Uh, it was on the Prince's own estate. It was on his own land, so it was a good spot for that. And indeed, as, as I say in the article, the, the gardens, the architecture around the gardens, actually used his crest as a kind of repeat decorative motif going all the way around. So he kind of must have felt a little bit at home at Vauxhall Gardens, I think, uh, almost as much as Jonathan Dyer's. You wanted at one point to title this article The Accidental Patriot, and um, I wonder if you could explain why you, you see Tyres' as, as patriotism as accidental. I think an awful lot of luck and accident went into the foundation of Jonathan Tyres' Vauxhall Gardens. Uh, when he acquired the site, uh, he clearly knew it was on the Prince's estate, and that clearly had a, an influence on uh, Tyres' acquisition of the site, uh, because he knew that the, he, could, he could make use of that, that royal connection. But I think, I mean, to, to be a royalist and a patriot, is that quite the same thing? I'm not sure. Uh, but <laughs> he he certainly 
by the time he was decorating the gardens, began to realise that there was a public taste for patriotism and that patriotism actually brought the public into the gardens. An interesting point you make in the article is that because the gardens fulfilled so many of the functions that would today be organised by the state, historians have viewed them almost as a sort of state-run enterprise. But you say that this isn't quite the case. Can you say a little bit more mm. about that? I, I think this is partly Jonathan Tyers's fault. Uh, I mean, he, he was very ambitious for his gardens and he wanted his gardens to succeed and he publicised them fantastically well. He never publicised himself. Uh, Jonathan Tyres was not a Beau Nash or anything like that. He, he was behind the scenes and nobody really knew anything about him until quite recently. Had he been a Beau Nash type, then it would all, always have been known as Jonathan Tyres' Vauxhall, which it wasn't. Mm. Uh, and because of this, I think it's almost been seen as a kind of, uh, a, a, not quite a nationalised industry, but certainly a, a place that was not run privately as a business, a place that was part of the, the public image of London and of this country. Uh, but of course it wasn't. It was a private business and it was run uh, to make a profit. And Jonathan Tyres made huge profits through the gardens. Mm -hmm. But he never, he never became famous himself. And he, in fact, hardly turns up in correspondence of the time or diaries or anything like that. People don't talk about Jonathan Tyres unless they knew him really quite well. So what happened to Tyres then? Uh, how long did he carry on running the gardens for? And, um, and, and what do you think is the sort of impact and legacy of Tyres Vauxhall? Well, Tyres, he ran Vauxhall right up until the day he died, which was in 1767, uh, that was his his last his last season, and in fact he was at his country home, Denbys, when he fell ill, and when he knew he was dying, he asked to be carried to Vauxhall Gardens mm. so he could have a last look at the gardens. That was really his 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 ideal creation. He was so proud of Vauxhall Gardens, um, but of course. Uh, Vauxhall Gardens carried on after his death and it was carried on by his children, by his grandchildren and by his great-grandchildren, uh, which is uh, an extraordinary record in a, in a family business. Mm. Uh, he died in 1767, but the, the family owned the gardens until 1825 when they were sold on to, to new owners. But Vauxhall, Jonathan Tyers's Vauxhall, really... I mean, I personally, I think his main legacies are artistic. Jonathan Tyers coming out of the leather trade in Bermondsey, he can't have known much about the arts. Uh, that wouldn't have been part of his education. But as a friend of Hogarth, as an employer of George Frederick Handel, the, the great composer, he got to know about the arts very quickly and he became, I think, one of the great patrons of the Georgian period. The, the, the music, the art, the architecture that Tyres commissioned made an enormous difference to how the arts developed through the later 18th century and into the 19th century. So the very origins of public art, perhaps. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, yes. Uh, and, and, I mean, on top of that, of course, we have the, the entertainments at Vauxhall. In Tyres' day, the entertainment really was, it was music, uh, it was the other people, because part of the joy of going to Vauxhall Gardens was to see and to be seen. Uh, you had to go and see what the other people were doing, who they were with, what they were talking about, what they were wearing. 
uh, and you had to wear your best costume yourself so that other people would go home and talk about you. Uh, so that this was all part of the entertainment, and that, of course, still goes on, in certainly in, in uh, European cities with the passeggiata, uh, the evening walk, um, and with music in the parks. I mean, the Victorian Park Bandstand is a direct descendant of the, the orchestra at Vauxhall Gardens. Well, I think we would all wish very much to be able to go back to Vauxhall Gardens during Tyre's time and experience some of an evening of pleasure there ourselves, but we can't do that. But you have, um, or you are curating an exhibition that opens in May about the gardens. Can you just tell us, give us a little taste of what, what we can expect to see there and the angle you're taking? Yes, uh, this is at the, the Foundling Museum in, in Bloomsbury. Uh, and... It seems odd to, to, to put together a, a pleasure garden and a, an orphanage in that way, but there are many common threads be, uh, between the two, particularly in the artists and composers. Handel was deeply involved, for instance, at the Founding Hospital, as was, as was Hogarth. Uh, so the exhibition is, is, is at the Founding Museum. The exhibition really looks at the gardens from the visitor's point of view so that we see straight away how you got to the gardens, what you saw when you got there, what you heard as you were going round, what you felt, what you smelt, what you tasted, um, and all of that. And, and it is, it's really trying to look at why Jonathan Tyres' Vauxhall succeeded as well as it did, because it's been a puzzle for a long time. Uh, clearly it was entertaining, it was, there was high-quality art, there was high-quality music and all that, but this doesn't really explain why people went back again and again and again, and everybody absolutely wanted to go to Vauxhall Gardens, whether you were the poorest in society or the richest. If you were the poorest, you would save, maybe for five years, you'd save your pennies, so you had 12 pence to afford the admission into Vauxhall Gardens just to say that you'd been once and to tell your friends what it was like and all of that. So it was a place where everybody wanted to go. Um, and and that's, that's one of the extraordinary achievements of, of Jonathan Tyres. But I think, I mean, the, the reason behind this appears to be that, and again, whether by accident or design, what Jonathan Tyres had created at the gardens was a kind of all-embracing sensory experience. So from the streets of London, which were so revolting and so noisy and smelly and, and violent and dangerous, where you really had to shut your senses down to, in order to survive, you got to Vauxhall Gardens and all your senses started to open like a, like a flower and you thought, oh, that looks lovely. And, oh, gosh, doesn't that sound fantastic? And by Joe, that smells good, you know, the food cooking in the, in the, in the, garden, in the kitchens of the house. Um, and so it, all your senses started to, to kind of open up. And really, when you left after an evening at Vauxhall, your senses were tingling. You, you felt real excitement uh, and possibly more alive than you'd ever felt before if you spent your whole life in the streets of London. So it was, it was almost a kind of addictive stimulant drug that you found at Vauxhall Gardens. And I think this, this is why people wanted to go back again and again and again. They, they got addicted to it. Lovely. David Cook, thank you very much. That's all for this edition of the podcast. You can read David Cook's article about Vauxhall Pleasure Gardens in the April issue of History Today. In addition, 
An exhibition on the history of the gardens is on at the Foundling Museum in London from May 11th until September 9th. You can also listen to previous editions of the podcast and comment on anything you've heard today by visiting www.historytoday.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The Eucalyptus Fiber Upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24.